You're listening to a Comics XF podcast. Matt Laswitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how are you? I'm having a night, Matt. I'm having a <laughs> night. Like all all of the all of the technology of the studio has failed. Everything is terrible. The thing I wanted to talk about tonight, thing I think it was on my mind. Let's let's talk about the former social media platform known as X, formerly Twitter, because I saw uh, that apparently you are uh, you're over on Blue Sky now, and I, I'll say this: I 100% believe in the sunk cost fallacy. I am dying <laughs> on this platform. I'm not going anywhere else. I will be the last person alive on Twitter because, because in my journalist brain, I think, oh, I can share my content on Twitter. More people will read my content. My content will be shared by other people. And my rational brain knows that to not be true because I can see the statistics. You know, nobody fucking clicks on links on Twitter. It's uh, it's terrible for everything. And yet I still believe I still believe that perhaps if I stay on this terrible platform, that maybe my content will be shared and it will be liked and I'll feel marginally better for myself for my content being liked and shared. And I'm not going anywhere else. It's taken me years to get up to right at 2000 followers. I I can't go through that stress and that (laughs) annoyance again. I am on Twitter until the lights go out. But it is terrible. And fuck Elon Musk for taking something that was already bad and somehow making it worse. I am at least glad he destroyed his reputation as being a smart person in the process uh, and unmasked himself as truly being one of the dumbest people alive. (laughs) How you fucking doing, Matt? (laughs) I'm doing okay. I mean, I'm going to continue using Twitter as well until the rumor if the rumor proves true which i have little doubt it will that everyone is gonna have to start paying for twitter because i ain't paying for freaking twitter no no and again i'm a fucking moron who does because i like the features and i always always wanted the blue check anyway uh but the features are nice I, i look i started paying before that asshole bought it but yeah that's truly one of the dumbest ideas ever right you're bleeding users and now you want to make the users who are still there you want to make them pay many of those users who have sworn to not pay it's so incredibly dumb i wanted to believe that oh he's really actively attempting to run it into the ground was just a conspiracy theory but there's no reason he's doing these things other than the intentional plan to make this platform not work. Well, have you considered the fact that he's a moron? Like <laughs> a a mouth-breathing idiot who is controlled by his basest impulses. Like he wakes up one morning and decides, 
oh, I want to rename the platform. And then he does it, right? Without the careful consideration and branding and focus grouping and testing and and thinking about the, the intellectual property issues and thinking about the advantages of sticking with a name that maybe he doesn't like. He's just really dumb. There's no 4D chess. There never is. He's just an idiot. That is distinctly possible. I admit the general thought that there's a conspiracy is usually wrong because conspiracies don't work because people are dumb and people are blabbermouths. So, yeah. But we, we have not included our guest in this discussion of the <laughs> horrors of social media. We do have a guest tonight. Our guest is fellow writer at Comics XF and writer of many other places, Austin Gorton. Austin! Hey! hey Austin! Hey, look at that. You timed that perfectly, Will. Uh, <laughs> we can hello. Will. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, Happy to be thanks here. Thanks for being here. I also think Elon Musk is an idiot and lament the slow decline of, well, not slow, surprisingly swift decline of Twitter from terrible to hellscape. When things go bad, they go bad quick. Right. I have thrown out social media uh, life preservers onto all of the other major sites, but uh, I'm also not planning to leave Twitter, at least until they start charging for it. Uh, it's it's going to be me and five other blue checks, and we're just going to be I playing get... the, the violins as the ship goes down. Yep, yep. I'm, I'm all with you on the sunk cost fallacy. <laughs> and you do realize you're going to be the only one who doesn't have a Make America Great Again somewhere <laughs> in their banner, right? Or like 16 random digits at the end of my name. Uh, I got, I got my MAGA hat and my profile pic. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yes, because as everyone who's listened to this show ever realized, we are both absolutely hardcore conservatives. Yeah. Oh, oh, absolutely. Look, look, Chuck Dixon is one of my heroes. Uh, <laughs> Ethan Van Skyver is a close personal friend. I know for a fact that he doesn't have a tiny penis. It's 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 really great because again we're all we're gonna make America great again. Only only the pure whites though. Yes, yes. And it's like I want to make some sort of Bill Willingham joke as another one of comics diehard conservatives, but I'm still so befuddled by last week's fables kerfluffle. I'm not even sure what to say about Willingham. <laughs> hissy fit. Point. It felt like a fables hissy fit. It did. It all did. right, Little Red Riding Hood. It's in the public domain now. <laughs> what you gonna do about that, DC? The big bad wolf is able for anybody to write stories about. I'm Bill Willingham. You wanna know the weirdest public domain thing I've seen today? What's that? I did not realize, and it shows you how little I pay attention to what comes out of Xenoscope, that Xenoscope... Oh. Just released today their first ever Sherlock Holmes comic. Just now in the public domain. Fully yeah. in the public domain. So yes, there's it is a Sherlock Holmes comic from Xenoscope. So of course it's Holmes's hot great granddaughter or something. Yeah, of course, because oh, it's course. Xenoscope. Because it's Xenoscope. But yeah. I saw this on the racks today and I was like, no, I cannot break my record of never having bought a Xenoscope comic, even no. for Holmes. No. Yeah. Yeah, but none of this has to do with what we're talking about tonight. Batman! 
not in the public domain. Nope, they will fight that one for as long as they can by special arrangement with the families of whoever they can get. Schnooker into signing a contract. Yep. But yes, we are here to talk about Batman. Ah, but first, as Austin is a first-time guest, Austin, what are your earliest memories of Batman? My earliest memories of Batman are probably superpowers. So like the 83 iteration of the show and Batman 66, which was, you know, syndicate. I'm not that old. It was syndicated (laughs) when I was watching it. So, I mean, Batman is one of those characters, I think, for a lot of people that I don't remember not knowing who Batman as is as a character and like his whole deal and the Bruce Wayne of it all. And, and all that just seems like that's information that always existed in my head. Batman 89 was probably one of the seminal movie going experiences of my young life. I remember lobbying my parents hard to let me see it because I would have been eight ish at the time. And it was PG 13. I had seen PG-13 movies, but at home. So it was a big like, you know, can I go see it in the theater? We don't know, blah, blah, blah. I did successfully lobby to see it. So I did get to see it in the theater and absolutely loved it. Though, once again, don't know how I knew this, but the fact that Joker was responsible for killing his parents bothered me at the tender age of eight. I was already like, that's not right. That isn't how it works. Why is that in the movie? Yay, that's a contrivance. (laughs) Right? Like, it just, I, you know, I didn't know who killed Batman's parents, I don't think, but I knew it wasn't the Joker. So I was very confused and concerned about that. But uh, Joker pulling the the long-barreled gun out of his pants and shooting the Batplane was, like, the coolest goddamn thing to eight-year-old Austin at the time. So, yeah, then I was just primed, you know, animated series. Right around that same time as when I started getting into comics, Anyone that follows me on the site formerly known as Twitter knows that I've been on a a trading card, superhero trading card spree. That was my entryway into comics. And then I started in comics with the X-Men and Avengers and some Marvel stuff. And then Batman was the first kind of DC character that I moved on towards thanks to a couple of three packs from Toys R Us that collected the first half of Nightfall. Nightfall was the first Batman comics that I ever read. And then I stuck with it from there. And have I read Batman pretty religiously up until New 52 and then sporadically thereafter. Nightfall is not the worst place. To it's a, I mean, it's a little weird because, you know... So it was a little like... weird, but it, it had like, you know, it's got some greatest hit villain stuff working its way through there. And I think the, the Aparo art imprinted on me at that point because that's where I'm just like, well, that's the best Batman artist ever. Why, why are you talking about? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you and I are of an age because I'm pretty... My journey is very, very similar. Yeah, yeah. It's a better place to start than I believe nearly every X-Men fan has, because I believe anyone who staunchly sticks with the X-Men starts at what must be the worst comic Mm -hmm. to start Mm -hmm. with. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because mine was complete gibberish and nonsense to to me, (laughs) starting at the middle chapter of the Muir Island saga. (laughs) Yep. That's a tough that's a tough spot Or my partner in crime. Dan Grote, starting with uh, X-Men 20, the one with the two Psylocks. Oh, God. A character who had not appeared on the cartoon, so he had no idea who Psylocke was. Mine was was X-Men number eight, 
which was uh, Bishop getting a, a boysenberry pie in the face from Rogue, Belladonna showing up, but did have Jim Lee drawing women in swimsuits for much of it. Uh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So that that probably helped, particularly as I got into my teen years. But lots of just cryptic. It's Bishop meeting the the blue team for the first time. And there's all kinds of like cryptic. Ah, yes. Jubilee, the last X-Man. And oh, Gambit, the witness. And you're like, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> yeah. This is the most X-Man talk we've ever had. I was going to say, it, 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 it is. <laughs> but we have a whole other show on this site for X-Men talk. Yes. We're here totally, totally unrelated. Yep. And a, a good week for you, Austin, with your pick showing up on Boda the week that we're yes. recording this. Yes, getting the uh, getting the baby books on the on the show, which was more or less a result of Zach calling my bluff ah. <laughs> or me calling Zach's bluff. Rather, yeah, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. You kidding right. me? He got your five bucks. He so. got my five bucks and I got them talking about X-Men storybooks. But we're not talking about Batman storybooks. We're not talking about X-Men tonight. Tonight, we're talking about three stories of Batman as a member of a team. We're starting off with The Batman of All Nations. This is Detective Comics Volume 1, number 215. The writer is Edmund Hamilton, with pencils by Sheldon Maldoff, inks by Charles Paris. No colorer or letterer are credited, and edited by Jack Schiff, with a cover date of January of 1955. Heroes from around the world that Batman has inspired have come to Gotham City to learn from their inspiration. But crime boss Knotts Cardine thinks this is a time to strike, both embarrassing the Dark Knight and finally killing him. So, Matt, let me start first by telling you this. If we had read this before Club of Heroes, I might want to like Club of Heroes a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this it occurred to me as I was trying to come up with the stories for tonight that it was like, oh, of all the Morrison inspirations, I completely forgot we hadn't actually read the story that introduces the Club <laughs> of Heroes. This might have come in handy on that front. Yeah, yeah, what wouldn't it hurt? But yeah, so this is the first appearance of the group that will become the Club of Heroes under Morrison's pen. But here we are very much in the late golden just shy of the silver age era where batman was mostly fighting gangsters or monsters this is a gangster story and it's not like the club of heroes gets much characterization here no most of them don't get more than a line or two frankly i mean i think the gaucho said two things and one of them was a a Spanish, uh, like Icarumba or something like that. Oh, and the knight and the squire, they just speak in this thread of Cockney, yeah. like Clermontian level Cockney. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. gee, blimey, Batman's not all that, is he? Bob's your uncle. Hey, what, what? And I mean, they will go on, or I guess the squire will go on since the knight in Club of Heroes is the squire here, will go on to be the most fleshed out of the Club of Heroes, with maybe the exception of uh, the Gaucho. They'll go to kind of be the two most developed of those characters. But here, they are not much of anything. 
I do enjoy, I'm generally not someone that gets into this stuff, this kind of thing, but I do like that we're just sort of, yep, there are people in other countries who like Batman and emulate him. There's no long, you know, here's what inspired Knight and Squire. Here's what inspired this. Like every once in a while, the the brevity of the Golden Age can be refreshing. And it's just like, all right, we're starting the story. And there's Batman in other countries. Are they bats? No, but they like Batman. So they're going to be like him and go. You will accept it and you will like it. Exactly. The Golden Age just like grabs you by the throat and takes you along for the ride. For good or ill. And yeah, exactly. Sometimes it doesn't work, and sometimes it does. <laughs> yeah, uh, this one felt like it mostly worked for me. It was just very straightforward. It's like, okay, we want to create a bunch of international bat people, so here they are. And they might never appear again, but I just decided that this is what I wanted to do this month. I'm Edmund Hamilton, I a writer <laughs> of all manner of crazy Golden Age stories. And so this is what we're doing this month in Batman. We mostly stayed on the right side of uh, stereotypes. So, hey, that's something. I mean, frankly, for 1955, this could have gone much, much worse. Thank God we didn't get any Asian or African (laughs) Batman. Yes, yes. And that we went with a colonialist white South American Batman instead of an indigenous Batman. Mm Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. and the say actually with Australia, a colonialist or right a, instead of an Aboriginal Batman, yeah, because none of that would have gone well. Yeah, yeah, not in not in fifty five. No, I did like. I think my favorite sequence was Batman sharing his training, like his experience, his tricks with the Club of Heroes, which is one of those things that I feel like in a I feel like a modern day writer would know to stay clear of something like that and have that happen off panel where it's like it picks up from like we're going to go to Gotham and learn Batman's tricks and then the next page is like thanks for showing us your tricks Batman oh no it's a crime in progress because as soon as you set yourself up for he's the best I can't wait to learn his tricks and then actually show those tricks it's mostly punching he has a belt like oh oh you put things in a belt why did we never think of this like there's there's nothing that any writer could have come up with that would have justified the setup of, oh, we love Batman so much, but he's so great. I want to learn his tricks and then have those tricks be anything that we care about. And any number of things would have required him to like unmask. It's like we that ain't going to happen. Right. It's like right. I'm not going to show you my disguise kit or how I become matches Malone. No. Right. Oh, I I maintain multiple personas so that I can continue to get information from all levels of society to aid in my, you know, that's, no, no, it's just, we put things in these little pouches on our belts. Oh, sometimes we kick criminals. Ah, kicking. Yes. Taking (laughs) notes. Let's, let's do it. (laughs) Let me show you some gymnastics. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I also love. Aim for the penises, gentlemen. (laughs) Aim for the penises. Ah, the penis. I also love. (laughs) <laughs> that they're on the roof of the police station as he's showing them the bat signal and then they go downstairs and do some stuff and then to call them back to the office Gord just turns on the bat signal again 
You're just downstairs, and this is still what you're using the bad signal for. I, I have that in my notes. Like, why didn't Gordon just walk to them? It would have been faster. <laughs> right. But in all fairness, Golden Age Jim Gordon was not exactly... It may not have been faster for him to walk there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we just did Jim Gordon walks a beat, and he was the, you know, stereotypical beat cop. <laughs> so he, he was not... Not quite the spry guy who could beat up a Green Beret and give him the baseball bat of the modern interpretation of Jim Gordon. Right. And I do have to give him credit. I know I've read this story. I probably read this story when when Morrison was fiddling around with, with these characters during their run. But I didn't remember the the twist other than that there was a twist and that's i mean pretty obvious as you're reading it that there's going to be some kind of a twist and i was still i thought that uh, it was pulled off pretty well as far as setting up you like oh wow this batman he now that we're here never meet your heroes man this guy kind of sucks and as soon as they start saying that you're like oh okay what's the twist is you know and i must have remembered something of the twist because i was starting to think that batman was somehow one of the club of heroes and someone else was posing as batman and i you know but all in all it was a reasonably clever twist this twist certainly works better than uh, another one we're going to see tonight yes (laughs) reading this the second time and having having read it before knowing the twist i could track it from the beginning pretty well Right. Which is the the hallmark of a good mystery story when on the second reading, everything sort of falls into place with certain degrees of golden age tomfoolery Mm -hmm. and the way some things are worded. I thought the thing that perplexed me at a moment was Batman saying, well, he couldn't have seen the scratches because the scratches were on the dark side of the car. Right. the, (laughs) The side of the car he wasn't facing the dark side of the car the, the is this like the moon? the moon i also just love the idea of gotham city pd putting out an apb for car with scratches on it look for a car with scratches call it in all units car with scratches this gcpd no you know the the gcpd of batman year one they could have gotten something on the books to say that scratches were legal they would pull on everybody over right so just for those out there The club of heroes in this book, the characters that we meet, are the Knight and Squire of the UK, the Musketeer of France, the Legionary Legionary of Italy, and the Ranger of Australia, all of whom do come back in Morrison's club of heroes, along with Man of Bats, who appeared in another separate story. But Morrison pretty much pulled all of them I think the only one Morrison created, there's one. Uh, is it the uh, Native American Batman? No, that's Man no, of Bats. Man of Bats. from another Golden Age story. Well, while you think, I'll say this. It's interesting how Legionary is, you know, jumped and replaced here. And then he's also a loser in Club of Heroes. Also, I why not just Legionnaire? Why is he Legionary? That <laughs> just seems diminutive and unfortunate for him wingman ah yeah yeah the one who wound up being well not gonna say it because will hasn't read that and i want this want it to (laughs) remain a surprise no spoilers who's swedish wingman was the batman of sweden oh yeah that's right but yes no i'm i'm avoiding 
revealing any of the bits from the Morrison run that we haven't gotten to yet, which is quite a bit as we're just through RIP. Knots might be one of the worst mobster nicknames I've <laughs> ever encountered. What was was he a boy scout? Was he really good at tying rope? And you'd think if that was his thing, you would have had something with it. But he's just not just a runnier, run-of-the-mill gangster. Which, again, is a lot of these Golden Age stories. Because yeah. crime had to pay, you had to keep creating new gangsters new crime, every yeah. issue. And the, the, the whole thing that he's after, I mean, it's basically like an armored car full of money, right? Yeah. Like that's yeah. that's essentially what it is. And it's just it both seemed when you step back and think about it, it seems like an awful lot of effort on both the criminals part and the heroes. Part. Like how many armored trucks full of money drive around a, a city on a regular basis, like just delivering money from like one bank to another. And it's a fairly are we going to have a team of heroes guarding every single one every time? And obviously they did in this case because of this whole elaborate scheme where he called out Batman publicly and uh, you know, blah, 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 blah. But like, don't just take one of the armored cars with money in it. it, it if that's all you're after, take one of the other ones. Don't draw attention to yourself. It shouldn't be that hard. This is Gotham. I know. You can't I not know. draw attention to yourself. I guess that's what happens when you're Knots, when your nickname is Knots. And how he goes about it, pulling two similarly elaborate heists beforehand, robbing the phone company and mm-hmm. then stealing the ticket taking wagon from a circus. Right. Circuses need to stop coming to Gotham City. <laughs> no good ever comes. To a circus coming to Gotham City. Either your acrobats die or the (laughs) Joker infiltrates your circus. Or your wagon gets stolen to be used as a pawn in some criminal's elaborate hoax. Right. And why do Gothamites go to a circus? Public enemy number one, the guy who has, if he has not personally harmed you, you know someone who has been hurt or killed by the Joker. Maybe it's just circuses without clowns. Maybe that's yeah. just, because if if you get a clown and you're saying like, okay, well that guy's the Joker. You, yeah, hey, you feel uh, like Ringling Brothers. By the way, breaking news: returning to touring without clowns. There, everyone just assumes they're all the Joker. And then, of course, we get a Batman death trap and Robin mourning Batman. And it did make me wonder how often. I want to go through every Batman comic and tally how many times Robin has thought Batman is dead for one reason or another. And at what point do you just like, man, fool me once, shame on me, fool me 6,910 times. I'm not buying it anymore. Especially this is a kid who was traumatized by the death of his parents right in front of him. Boy, it's got to kind of be cruel. Like, oh, I'm your parental figure and I'm going to keep pretending to die. And in in this issue, it's... When you called me on the radio, that was the best radio call I've ever gotten or something. I'm like, okay, sure. I'm glad you're like, take a step back, Robin, and think about it. <laughs> he just completely dicked you over. Not as big a dick as the Superman of that late golden, early silver age, though. That guy. Oh, yeah, that, that guy was a great A jerk, but uh, yeah. I'd still rather be Robin than Jimmy Olsen. Yes, that is for sure. Or, or Lois or Perry. Perry or Lana. Yep. Or Morris, uh, Pete. Yep. Yeah. Superman remained kind of a jerk until the 70s. I think then he met Steve Lombard and was like, is that what I'm like? 
oh, I, I got to stop this. I don't want to be like that guy. As we are now doing Super Chat, uh, I think it might be time. Oh, that means it's time. But Detective Comics number 215, the Batman of all nations on the big board. We are up to 312 stories on the big board. God damn. Number, number one is and remains Batman Year One, the post-crisis origin of Batman. At number 50 is A Savage Innocence, the issue where the Joker gets the power of the Spectre. Coming in at a sexy 69, it's Batman 588 to 590, closed before striking from last week, if I remember correctly. You are correct, sir. At 100 is My Own Worst Enemy, the first arc of the Scott Snyder All-Star Batman. At 150 is the first appearance of Jason Todd and Killer Croc. At 200, we have Batman and Son, the first appearance of Damien. At 250, we got the Delta Connection, the issue of Brave and the Bold, where Batman meets Swamp Thing and Catwoman has a random sister. And at the bottom, still Curse of the White Knight. Boo! Long may it rain. It can't beat Batman 66 at 210. Okay, so not not better than the Joker's boner, no. No, no, because (laughs) that's truly a gift that keeps on giving. But it is by no means bad. It's a fun little story. Yeah. Trying to see what else we have floating around from this year. Okay, well, there's a question, Will. Uh, 224 is Club of Heroes. That's hard because, again, I I think that this gives a little bit of background, a little bit of depth to Club of Heroes. Certainly makes me appreciate what Morrison was doing there more. I'd probably put this below Club of Heroes, probably. I think... I think it might, though, be better than our next Golden Age story, which is right around the same time with uh, Commissioner Gordon walks a beat down at 231. That's yeah, cool. that, that had some goofy story plots to it. This is it is very fantastic, obviously, with, you know, all of the, the Batman across the globe. But at least it doesn't do anything as silly as, oh, yeah. Uh, the mayor's being bribed or uh, blackmailed because of his idiot son. And Batman <laughs> winds up saving all of everyone by having a panel of invisible bulletproof glass in front of Patrolman Gordon to beat the mobster who is a compulsive gambler. All right, so it goes above that. Above that is year two. Speaking of wild and crazy stories. And above that is the cat, the first appearance of Catwoman. Don't think it's better than that. That also had a neat little mystery to it, but it's the first appearance of Catwoman. Yeah, that's tough to beat. Uh, you want to say the new 230 then? Yeah, new 230 sounds good. Our next story is Snapper Car, the Super Traitor. This is Justice League of America, volume one, number 77. The writer is Denny O'Neill, with pencils by Dick Dillon and inks by Joe Giella. No other creators are credited. The cover date is December of 1969. Nice. 
The JLA's mascot, Snapper Carr, has fallen under the sway of John Doe, the most normal man in America, whose goal is to eradicate everything out of the ordinary. And his first target? The Justice League. Before we get into this, uh, either one of you gentlemen ever read uh, Harris and Bergeron? Yes. By Kurt Vonnegut? Uh-huh. Yeah, very... Got some vibes here. And Denny O'Neill is well-read enough to make me think that there's probably a connection there. Probably. And he was, Denny O'Neill was well-read enough and enough in that scene at the time. Yeah. yeah, That's probably intentional. For frame of reference, this issue came out five months before the first of the hard traveling heroes stories. Ah, I wondered about that yet did not take the time to do that research. So thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. The, I I wanted to because I did not do enough research to see how long Denny had been doing Justice League stuff. Mm-hmm. But this is clearly lefty Oliver Queen. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I wanted to figure out where that evolution came because that came from Denny. Because before that, Ollie was just... He could have been one of the Batman of all nations. He was, yeah, he was basically just Batman with arrow gimmicks instead of bat gimmicks. Right. So it was only when Denny took the character that he made him the lefty superhero. Mm-hmm. So he, he's definitely giving that vibe. And since I knew this was a Denny, I wanted to see where it lie against Hard Traveling Heroes. And Hard Traveling Heroes starts in April of 70. Okay. And we're, or cover date, April of 70. Yeah. So we're cover date December of 69 here. So I did some research. Harrison Bergeron originally published in 61, published in Welcome to the Monkey House in 68. Ah, see, he would have been top of mind for Denny then. I feel like this story was Denny trying to do some resetting of the Justice League because he's giving them a new headquarters and getting rid of Snapper Carr. Mm-hmm. And you got to think, Snapper had been around since the first Justice League story. So he'd been around for a number of years. And we're getting to the point of 1969 where that doesn't work as much. The the wacky team mascot. Right. Snapper right. First, would have first appeared in 1960. So he's been around for nearly a decade. And... I feel like Denny just looked at that character and was just like, yeah, no. Robin still kind of works, but this guy, non-powered, literally got his nickname because he, in the old Golden Age stories, or early Silver Age stories, he was just constantly snapping his fingers, which... Hip cats, how's it going? Yep. He and even, obviously, mean... obviously, I know everything about this snapper car, but... Uh, for the listeners who don't, um, <laughs> is this literally a guy who just hangs out with the Justice League? Pretty much. Yeah. He's, he's their mascot, sort of. <laughs> in his first appearance, the first appearance of the Justice League, he basically falls ass backwards into the way to stop Starro, who is the first villain in a Justice League story. And because he helped them stop Starro, he was made their mascot in the same way that Rick Jones hangs around with every Marvel hero at one point or another as their sort of non-powered buddy. Sidekick. Buddy. Yeah. So he's like 
Jimmy Olsen but can't work a camera? Yeah. 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 What or like Rick idea. Jones, but he doesn't look like Batman's dead sidekick that gets dressed up like the dead sidekick. Yeah, Snapper, over the years, they've tried to make Snapper Carr happen repeatedly, and he never really works. Like they gave him superpowers in the 80s. He was a teleporter out of invasion. Oh, the, yeah. The best use of Snapper Carr was in the Tom Pyre Our Man series, where he was basically chumming around with Our Man, who's an android from the 853rd century, as his guide to modern humanity, where his whole thing is to just be a normal Joe. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, he worked there because they kind of did the Rick Jones thing where they partnered him up with a specific character and it was almost like the hour man snapper car bit was almost a little bit like the rick jones captain marvel pairing and that worked a lot better than just being the doofy kid that hangs out in the justice league's cave headquarters and you know like let's also give denny o'neill some credit dank cave isn't the most auspicious headquarters for the justice league either like put aside the snapper car of it all and that was probably a wise move to move them out of that it works for Batman. Right. That's about it. Yeah. They're the yeah. Justice League. Moving them up to the satellite makes a lot more sense. Right. And it's right. why the League has, in general, had satellite or moon base mm-hmm. bases since then. The only exceptions really being the JLI era well, in mm-hmm. Detroit. But we don't talk about Justice League Detroit. Uh, <laughs> But JLI because of the the embassy status, right, right. And there was the what was it uh, was it the Metzler run where they were they were in the Hall of Justice. They're basically doing the the Super Friends Hall of Justice thing for a while. But I think even then they may have had the satellite still. Yeah, I that think it was that... like you went to the Hall of Justice and then from there you could teleport up to the satellite yeah. or something like that. Yeah, that was I believe that was. From Melter, or right, it might have been Dwayne McDuffie who took. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, that era. It was right around them where it was like the Hall of Justice was the front facing base, but they actually did everything in the satellite. Yeah, it makes me think it was McDuffie since McDuffie is the one on JLU who gave them the satellite. I'm gonna have to go back and reread that Melter run for this show at some point or another. I don't (laughs) need to reread it again before that. Right. So I'm glad that you picked this issue because this is one of those issues that I had never read before, despite its relative infamy. I feel like Wizard talked about this issue a lot back in the day to the point where like as soon as I started reading, it was like, oh, it's a snapper car one. Okay, cool. Great. I'm going to finally read this one. Same. This one was on my I don't remember if the showcase presents the big black and white mm-hmm. phone books mm-hmm. never got up to this issue or I think I, I still have, have, I think I still never, I don't think I read the last volume. It's on my shelf. Yeah. So I just probably haven't gotten to it because I've read the first two or three volumes, but I was just thinking when we're talking about Batman on team, I was like, I want to do something justice league. I could do some JLI, but I've got some JLI lined up for later. Let's do some classic Justice League since I know you enjoy some some funky Silver Age stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and I was yeah. like, okay, if we're gonna do an issue with Justice League, it's got to be the one with the Joker, where mm-hmm. he, he gets sniper. Yes, and I just spoiled it, everyone. This is a Joker story, <laughs> but it <What>? is the- <laughs> just, just so bizarre. And 
I will say this for Denny as well. The psychological motivation he gives Snapper makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's just so rushed for this story. Yeah. You can almost feel Denny being crushed by the confines of the standards of the time. And I'll just be like, moral state like just the the conventions of the genre at this time the page length the done in one the sort of forced simplicity of it all you really feel like he's got an idea here that you could have easily turned into like a two or three issue arc maybe even just like five years later yeah the fact that in the end when the justice league confronts snapper about betraying them it isn't mind control it's right well, right. partially that he actually bought into Doe's everybody needs to be normal shtick. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he's he's legitimately pissed off at the Justice League. Doe tapped into that. Like he would he didn't create it, he tapped into it. The additional thing for him is that everyone who meets him, oh, you're the guy who hangs out with the Justice League. Nobody right. cares that he's Snapper Car. Nobody cares about him for him. It's always, oh, you're the Justice League's little buddy. And how many times do we see that with the people who are the second fiddle to a celebrity, the friend of a celebrity, the the spouse who is not as big a name as their other spouse? It's fairly common human condition stuff. And again, as you said, in a couple of years, if this were the early to mid 70s, we would have gotten that as a a running subplot for a few issues. And then we would have spun it into a couple issue arc of this guy trying to bring down the Justice League. And this is counterculture Denny O'Neill. Right, right. His whole thing here where Oliver is his mouthpiece Mm -hmm. about how each of us, everyone being different coming together, that's what gives us a society versus everyone having to be the same is a counterculture idea. It's very interesting because this is very much a Batman story in that, you know, it's the Joker is the villain and he's doing all this, especially to target Batman and Batman gets the hero moment where he finds a way out of the trap and all of that. But it's almost just as much a Green Arrow story. Like of all of the rest of the Justice League, Green Arrow's the one that says the most, gets the most, has the most like point of view because to your point, he is very much O'Neill's mouthpiece already. I have to imagine Denny might've already been setting up hard traveling heroes. Yeah. Or turning a couple of scripts or something. Yeah. I don't know if Neil Adams was as slow an artist then as he would have been (laughs) later on, but if they wanted these to come out, those to come out roughly on time, he might've already had scripts in for Adams to be right. Right. But the death trap here is a lot of fun. That is a very silver age bit in 69 right we're pre-heart traveling heroes so we're not into the bronze age yet because that's usually the cutoff and dc lagged marvel in a lot of in terms of kind of pulling itself out of the silver age into the bronze age in that this this doesn't read that differently from a 65 or 66 story in the justice league no oliver's speeches yeah are are the exception yeah green arrows is the one character that doesn't read that much differently Batman doesn't read like Denny O'Neill's Batman over no. in Detective or Batman. He reads right. like the Silver Age Batman here. Right. And even Joker isn't the Joker of the Joker's five-way revenge. Mm-hmm. He's a little more violent than the more hokey Silver Age Joker. 
Mm-hmm. But he's not the macabre, sinister Joker of, of Joker's five-way revenge. Right. And we're also dealing with the awfully confusing Silver Age Black Canary stuff that is just... <laughs> Who can somehow scream backwards? Yeah, that one was... Okay, so she has to face away from you for her powers to work. <laughs> She's like, I'm yeah. practicing my scream. Oh no, it came out the back of my head. I don't think that's how screams work. Let's let's be clear about this Joker uh, involvement here. He is unmasked on the last page, the yes. very last page, like almost in such a Scooby Doo kind of fashion, like very Scooby Doo. Yeah, Joker. Wah <laughs> <laughs> wah. If it wasn't for you meddlesome heroes. And your little mascot. Wait, no, no, he was totally on my side in this one. This is one that I don't know how well that mystery hangs together. I I guess the clues are there, but they're way more forced. We can start from the beginning that John Doe is, you know, not, not anybody's real name. It's spelled D-O-U-G-H. I'm sure that 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 makes it seem more real, right? Of course. Yes, this is clearly a fake person, like right from the... Uh, he apparently hoodwinks a large swath of the population into believing his shtick, and I'm like, no one sees through this as, as what it is. And his shtick being that superheroes are bad, because though they have powers, and nobody should have powers. Nobody should be exceptional. Right, it's not a, it's not a, like superheroes are bad because they have powers and their fights kill people and drive up insurance rates or whatever. It's just like anyone who's exceptional is bad. We should all be average. Again, Harrison Bergeron. Yes, exactly. <laughs> look, 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 I look, I want to be clear. I have read two stories, Harrison Bergeron and Benito Cerrito. And so anytime the occasion comes up to reference one of those two stories, I will do so. Follow your leader, people. Follow your leader. And let's not also forget, Joker here has a ray that makes people more susceptible to suggestion. More suspicious somehow, too. It's weird. A little little anxious. Yeah. and, And we're still at a point where... The girl on the superhero team, and I girl is in air quotes here, is not treated as well as someone as competent as Black Canary should be treated. Right. Yeah. On the one hand, I I enjoy the way that they work her her recency and make that a clue that when Joker shows up and is handing out tickets in disguise to the rally, he's he's captured Batman. And he's inviting the justice. He's saying, you know, oh, we've been invited to this rally. And Black Canary's like, do you have a ticket for me? And he's like, uh, sorry, strange woman. I don't. You'll have to sit in the audience. And it's, oh, that seems weird. And it's because Joker doesn't know yet that Black Canary is on the Justice League because she hasn't been formally introduced to the public. And that's kind of clever. But the end result is the girl sits in the audience for the climax of the story and gets sexually harassed yes. by the guy. Wait, she's abnormal. She's too pretty. Nobody should be that pretty. She's, <laughs> she's obviously hot. a commie. She's hot. Wait. That must make her a commie agent. I'm like, what? You keep using those words. I do not think they mean <laughs> what you think they mean. Despite the fact that, I don't know, she's at least as powerful as like half the Justice League, assuming she turns around and attacks backwards. That's so dumb. 
and the Joker giving the tickets that had the chip. same tech the, the, yeah. in a chip form, which just, again, if we were at a point where there was more continuity, it would have been like, well, I lifted this off Mad Hatter. Right. That is that right. is Mad Hatter tech, although not at this point in the Mad Hatter's history. The Hatter doesn't become mind control guy until the 80s. Here, he's just hat guy. I mean, this is it's the classic. You made this stuff like stop robbing banks and, and killing fish and just make money off of this tech that you're apparently good at creating, Joker. Yeah, but then he wouldn't get the wonderful visceral thrill of killing people. True, true. Wouldn't be nearly as funny. Yeah, I, I, I don't have much else because I don't think I want to go into the whole Earth 2 Black Canary bit, yeah. which I could try to describe Black Canary's current convoluted background in this era, and it is not good. It is funny that, you know, DC wasn't wasn't doing the... It was still largely you know, done in one stories, and they weren't real continuity heavy at this point, but they were clearly seeing what Marvel was doing and what Marvel was doing in sales. And so they were trying to bring some of that in. And it's just bizarre, like the things they decided to make continuity and, and address this whole like Earth One, Earth Two, Black Canary crossed over. The act of doing so gave her powers and all this. It's like we couldn't possibly spend two issues giving some depth to Snapper Carr's disdain for the Justice League, but we're going to make sure that we keep this Earth 2 crossover nonsense going on issue to issue to issue. I will say this is my final note. The art here for Joker is uh, not good. Mm -mm. Yeah, it had that vibe of Kurt Swan head on Jack Kirby body. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like they used to do in the Superman comics where it's like, okay, we just need to, somebody just put Joker's head on that body because he's off model because he's not in his Joker clothes. So mm-hmm. we don't know how to draw him in a normal set of clothes. So we're just going to cut a head off and paste it on there. He's got pointy ears. Yeah, it's bizarre. It was a very off-putting Joker. And not in the, like, disturbing Dave McKean in Arkham Asylum way. Right. Yeah, I'm I'm going to say this is the, the worst Joker who didn't cut off his own face in terms of <laughs> art. Uh, my only other note on this one is that it almost reads a little like a precursor to Legends in the way that it's yeah. person whipping up a frenzy, media frenzy of the general public against the Justice League. And seeming to be where we're going in the current DC right. oeuvre right. out of Night Terrors with what Waller and The Light are up to. Mm-hmm. It's like poetry. It rhymes. Yep. And my last note, no matter how dumb the whole thing is, Joker, Operation Average is an even dumber thing to call it. <laughs> that name well, is below average. <laughs> on that note, we're plumb out of notes. So that means it's time. But Justice League of America, number 77, Snapper Car, Super Trader, Super Average, on the big board. All right, Will, where are you you feeling here? Mm, That's a very good question. This is by no means bad. It's it's hokey in places, but it also has some good bits to it. All right, so it has to go above, we'll say, arbitrarily, 252. I mean, after 252, we do start to get into some either bad stuff or questionable stuff or problematic stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, It it is not in that bottom eighth of the list, I guess. 
No, I didn't sign up for this to do fractions, Matt. Yeah, no, even I'm sitting here <laughs> trying to figure it out. It's like, no, I'm not going to try to do that math. Well, is it better than Batman of All Nations? Let's start. Yeah, there. I was trying to figure that out. That's that's tricky. This has more character to it. The problem is the character that we're given is sort of rushed because, as as Austin said, the way comics were made at the time. This has more ambition than Batman of all nations, which was just, hey, let's just create a bunch of Batman and do this. This is trying to evolve the Justice League and move them into a new status quo. But the Joker reveal is so rushed and just strange. And like you said, the, the mystery of who is John Doe doesn't you know hold up all that well. God, I as much as I hate to do it, I gotta basically go with a push here, right? That I don't think there's significant ground between these two books. So if we're assuming we're right in the same area, I think this is better than 235. You can't hide from a dead man. The Bob Haney, Neil Adams, Brave and the Bold issue, which is a Bob Haney comic, so it's not trying to move anything forward and is just trying to tell a crazy story because that's what Bob Haney does. Not that it's a bad thing. You get some good stories out of that. But this is doing more than that. It's also doing more than above that. The Cry of Night is Sudden Death, that 60s retelling of Case of the Chemical Syndicate. I've got Kill Down. Oh, it might. I might have just mistyped. The Cry of the Night is... Okay, but it's that it's that story, right? We have to maintain integrity between the two lists. We can't have factual errors. I'll check that while you. <laughs> you know, I, the Joker stuff is shorter than the perplexing stuff with the mayor in Commissioner Gordon walks a beat. So I'd say this is better than that. Son of a gun. Well, we're both. This is another one like that. Uh, Legends of the Dark Knight Halloween special. We're both right. It was originally <laughs> sudden death in the original printing. And when they reprinted it in that Detective 627, they reprinted it as kill. So we are both right. Incredible. Yep. Uh, okay. So we're saying above Gordon walks a beat. So two spots down from Batman of All Nations. Yeah, I think so. The new uh, 232. New 232 it is. And let it be known, Snapper Carr is not just a traitor. He's a super traitor. Super traitor with an exclamation point. They really want you to know Snapper Carr is kind of the worst. Hold on, I gotta put the exclamation point in my list. (laughs) There we go. Super traitor. Our final story of the night is what I am calling, as there is no specific title for this one, Enter the Outsiders. This is Batman and the Outsiders, Volume 1, Numbers 1 and 2. The writer is Mike W. Barr, with art by Jim Aparo, colors by Adrian Roy, letters by Aparo, and edited by Len Wein and Nicholas Cutie. The cover dates are August to September of 1983. When a coup in the Eastern European country of Markovia traps Lucius Fox in the hands of revolutionaries, Batman must form a new team to rescue him. Meet the Outsiders. Woo? 
question mark <laughs> this is uh this is a pretty good pilot yeah this is a getting the team together book thumb your nose at the justice league get your team together this is the real beginning of batman pardon the pun here but the outsider as a character that mm-hmm. it's not just frank miller who makes batman the hero who isn't just one of the guys it really starts around here and we're a couple of years out from dark knight at this point Mm -hmm. that here batman you know he wants to go to markovia to rescue lucius and the justice league is like the state department asked us to stand down so we're gonna stand down and this of course is a common problem in superhero comics Because if you exist in a world of superheroes, why don't the superheroes just, for want of a better analogy at this particular moment, walk into Ukraine, lift all the Russian tanks, drop them back in Russia, punch Vladimir Putin in the nose, and then walk away? Because Because that that, big blue Boy Scout promised the president he wouldn't. That's how we get injustice, Matt. Do you want injustice? That's how we get injustice. I'm not arguing any of these points, but this is why this story is a little funny because the Justice League has never interfered in any revolution before. But, oh, because Batman's friend is there, now we have to go in and we have to interfere. Right. You see where Superman and Wonder Woman are coming from. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And Batman gives this whole big spiel in in issue one about... It serves as a as a little origin recap, you know, for new readers and, and whatnot. But he's basically just like, you know, I swore an oath to dispense justice. And if I don't go where there's injustice, then my whole life will have been for nothing. And yeah, OK, cool. That's I get it. Go, go Batman. But like this is all predicated on the fact that a guy, you know, got kidnapped and taken there. Which is fine, but there's probably all kinds of injustice happening in Markovia, regardless of Lucius Fox. There's nothing to do with Lucius Fox. There's probably lots of injustice all over the world. Like, again, you can't be everywhere. I get it. But don't try to, like, play holier than thou with Superman and Wonder Woman in this case, because really you're just motivated by the fact that this guy, you know, is the one that is in harm's way in this particular revolution. He could have made the point better by looking at them and saying, well, what if it was Lois Lane or right. Steve Trevor? Exactly, exactly. You would interfere then, but... Are you suggesting that Lucius Fox is Batman's boyfriend? Not in That's this... a real pregnant pause there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to come up with the best funny line to reply to that one with. No, see, Lucius at this point was a friend of Thomas Wayne's, and that would just be weird. Every time I've read this issue, I've never done like a chronological batman read through but it's always one of those where i'm like were they even that close at this point in time like fine you know, batman doesn't really have like a lois lane or a or a steve trevor that's like, okay it's it's dick or it's you know it's one of the alfred alfred yeah alfred alfred would be a perfect if alfred got kidnapped you'd be like god damn it superman call the praise the banners let's go get alfred Lucius seems and has always felt an odd motivator for this. This is a good, to your point, pilot episode, but you can you can feel the way they wrote back from the starting point a little bit where it this didn't start from what's the rift in 
the Justice League and Batman. It's like, we want to do a new book with Batman as a team. We need to break him up from the Justice League somehow. How are we going to do that? Lucius Fox gets kidnapped and the Justice League says no. Batman is out in three panels. Right. Exactly. Peace, deuces. Lucius was a plot device a lot. Yeah. The recent story we did not too long ago, The Lazarus Affair, where he was in the hospital because he got beaten up because of guys who were trying to take over Wayne Enterprises. Mm -hmm. Lucius suffers a lot of trauma as part of being in Batman's orbit. And at this point, he doesn't even realize he's part of Batman's orbit. Right. Where's the justice in that, Batman? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> we won't get into me and my issues with Lucius Fox as a member of Batman supporting cast versus Bruce Wayne supporting cast. Uh-huh. I want to think brief tangent that they're starting to realize that in the monthly books where they're mm-hmm. realizing, oh, right, Bruce Wayne doesn't really exist anymore. And maybe right. it's time that we started having Bruce Wayne do stuff and have a Bruce Wayne supporting cast mm-hmm. because everyone knows he's Batman. Yeah. Before Batman gives the final kiss off to the Justice League, we get a little bit of a metatextual acknowledgement of the big three of the Trinity. I don't know. Have they done that before this point in time? That felt very modern (laughs) for an 83 book. Yeah, that was in my notes is this might be the first real acknowledgement of them as the trinity that inspires the rest of the heroes. Yeah. Because yeah. I can't remember a time before this where that was called out. Which, of course, is ironic because it's brought up just before Batman pieces out and there won't, three of them won't be on a team together again for many, many years. Morrison. Morrison. I'm pretty sure it's Morrison. Their JLA, I think, is the next time the three of them are on a team together. Or, I mean, just before Morris in the yeah, Midsummer the... Night's Dream or whatever the miniseries was that kind of brought them together that I think Mark Wade wrote. Yep, Mark Wade and I yeah, think, I think it's a yeah. co-write. But yeah. uh, I think that's the next time that the three of them are on a team together. Yeah, because Superman and Wonder Woman are together on the Justice League at mm-hmm. one point or another. Batman isn't on the Justice League with either of them mm-hmm. during the JLI. Right. And then and... when Superman's there, he's Batman's not. And then Wonder Woman's there after Zero Hour, but Superman is not. Right. So yeah, it's, it's one of the Trinity for much of, for all of that period, but not all of them. But this does bring us to Markovia, first appearance of Markovia, mm-hmm. and the second appearance of many of the Outsiders, the first of them being the preview story in Brave and the Bold 200. But we've got... Three new characters and two returning characters who hadn't been around for a while, with those two being Metamorpho and Black Lightning, and Halo, Katana, and Geoforce making their first appearances here. You earlier noted that you referred to Markovia as an Eastern European nation, which is how I always think of it. And I was almost kind of stunned when I read this issue again, and they have the little map, and it borders France and is just south of Belgium. I'm like, that doesn't feel right. <laughs> and they call it Eastern European. They at do. One point or they another. do. But yeah. yes, the geography of the DC universe is apparently very weird. It is. It is. Yeah. But credit to them for actually trying to put it on a map. 
Right. Do we know where Latveria or Wakanda are, or is it just kind of like they... we do? I mean, there's there's maps out there where they've wedged them in to make it fit, but yeah, it's weird. No bass. We're not talking about Black Panther. I said Wakanda, <laughs> and Bess just sort of appears. Was it the JLA Avengers crossover where they noted that the DC Earth was slightly larger than the Marvel Earth, which is supposed to be like a, a wink at the fact that they have a lot more fake countries and fake cities and things like that. So the planet would have to be a little bit bigger. Yeah, I believe you are correct. That was, that was a cute bit. There's a lot of fun little bits in the, the yeah. JLA Avengers. But we have this story now where, okay, so Batman winds up over there in Markovia and he brings Black Lightning with him and everyone else is sort of there. And so we have Batman slowly meeting all of these characters and each of them meeting in different combinations. And it's by no means a bad story, but it it does feel very much like, okay, let's just give you and now, now we're meeting this character and we'll see what mm-hmm. this character does. And now we'll meet this character and we'll see what this character does. It's very workmanlike. Yes. Very by the numbers. Which, as we've seen from some of his other stuff that we've done, Mike Barr does not often do workmanlike. No, no, that's what's interesting. I mean, I don't know if it's interesting in a good way, but that's what's interesting about Batman and the Outsiders. It's a much more traditional book than Son of the Demon or Batman Year Two or all the stuff he does with Leslie Tompkins and those weird stories. Although, again, here we have a Batman. Bars Batman is much more accepting of the death of people than pretty much anybody <laughs> else. He's just like, Geoforce at the end just takes our villain, Baron Bedlam, and is like, yeah, he's wrong the people of Markovia. Let's have the people deal with him. And he just throws him into a literally pitchforks and torches wielding mob. I won't kill you, but I don't have to stop Geoforce from throwing you off a parapet to an angry mob. And in all fairness, if there was anybody who deserved it, it's Baron Bedlam. Yeah, I mean, this is where you get into to like the again, kind of like the why don't superheroes stop war things where there's tried to steal an armored truck crime. And then there's, you know, launched a war for personal conquest and invaded a country and and murdered people. And it's it's just a whole nother. It's kind of like. Captain America doesn't kill, but also in World War II, he was a soldier and killed Nazis. Those two things could be true. And Bedlam, let's be fair, Bedlam's a Nazi. Right, for all intents and purposes. Even if he and his dad didn't actually wear the swastika, they were the quizzling occupation of Markovia. Right. They were Nazis. And so if I'm ever willing to look the other way on Batman's no-kill rule... It's for actual card-carrying Nazis. Right. Who just launched, invaded a country and killed a lot of innocent civilians. Right. Because Bedlam literally says he wants back a childhood possession of his, Markovia. Right. You monster. His army is filled with chauvinists? Yeah. Chauvinists who were mostly, it seems amateur mercenaries who he just put out an ad in the back of soldier of fortune and they all signed up. There is very much a timestamp of when this book came out with literally a 
real men don't eat quiche reference. Right. So he's read every issue of Soldier of Fortune. And he's never eaten quiche. It's <laughs> <was> like, okay. <laughs> Boy, you're missing out. Quiche can be great. Real men don't eat quiche. Look, it's it's just egg pie. Come on. What's there what's there not like about quiche? Right? Right. Also, at one point, Batman says he's going to lower the boom, which felt I don't know if that was topical or not, but it sure felt topical. That felt like the 80s. Yeah. Also, fun little cameo of another character when Bedlam is talking about the liberation of Markovia from his father by the Americans. The character you see leading the American forces is Sergeant Rock. That's right. That was cool. That was a nice little... <laughs> I like the way that Aparo drew it so that it's almost like Rock is winking at the camera as he walks <laughs> by. <laughs> and there's some really nice Aparo art in this book. Yeah, there really is. And that's what one of the things that always drew me to this series was the, the Aparo art is, is really nice. There's one panel in particular as Prince as King Gregor's army is facing Bedlam's and Gregor's tank gets blown up and he drops the banner of the country and it's falling and you just see Batman's arm reach onto panel and grab the flag and it's just this image of Batman's arm and it's a really strong moment and mm -hmm. maybe I need to go back and read some Silver Age Metamorpho but it's not he he falls into pieces and I've got to find it. Is, <laughs> is that what happens anytime he's knocked unconscious? <laughs> I know I've read these issues before and I did not remember Metamorpho falling apart into so many candy colored pieces and do not remember that as part of his shtick at all anywhere else. Yeah, it, I've got I want to go back and reread some of the or read some of the Bob Haney uh, Ramona Frame Metamorpho because like, OK, is that? part of his shtick or was that because it just looked like he got shot like, he wasn't like right, ray guns right. or anything it's just he got shot and he tumbles to pieces apart. okay now i have an, i understand even more now why you want to stop being metamorpho rex because right? if every time you fall asleep or go unconscious you fall into multiple pieces that's not good there's metamorpho black lightning who's the one that batman recruits or brings in because no one will believe that he's Lucius Fox's brother. Uh, Bruce Wayne, it would have been easier to just point out that Bruce Wayne would have been a very valuable hostage. Yes, that probably was the way to do that. At Black Lightning, I think this is coming after his solo series. And yes. he doesn't have his powers, but then Batman yells at him and then he has <laughs> his powers again. Batman badgers him into using his powers. And then there's Katana. Uh, who, who give, given this is Mike Barr, I was disappointed that her sword didn't also shoot bullets. Um, and you get Katana's the one you get the least of, probably. Yeah. That you just know that she was out avenging someone she loved. And there's the one panel where you get the weird thought speech bubble that we'll learn later is the voice of the souls trapped in her sword. Right. But we right. don't even get much of that here. Yeah. It's not even highlighted as like a mystery. It's it's presented as something that you should just know, which reading it now we do, but no one then did. So it's kind of a weird. Yeah, you know, sometimes they'll put something in a 
in a comic where you're like, what the hell was that that just happened? And it's presented in a way that you know you're supposed to be wondering that. This just feels very much like, a, oh, that must be a power she has that I don't know about. And then Halo, who is very much that, you know, okay, we don't know what the hell's going on with this character. And so I think Halo's probably the character that gives this series whatever bad rap it has. It's probably Halo, right? Yeah. Because it's one of those weird, she has no memory, but does. So like Batman says, when was the last time you had any food? And she's like, what's food? But then later he's like, land over there. And then she puts down like, so she doesn't know food, but she understands the command land over there. There's a couple other things she says where it's like, wait, how does she know what that means when she doesn't know about food or sleep? Right. And so I feel like through all throughout the series, that's her, her whole thing is just like, what is this common thing that everybody knows? I do not know because of my mysterious past. And it just gets old fast. Yeah. She was never a particularly interesting character and is the one who's appeared the least outside of the mm-hmm. outsiders. Even Looker, who's the other member who joins a little later on, has more oh, of a, yeah. a life beyond yeah. the Outsiders than Halo does. Right. Halo usually just shows up as Katana's sort of adopted daughter mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. doesn't have much of anything to do outside of that. And there's the whole weird thing where it's like she has the mind of a child. Like that's the idea. It's supposed to be that like she doesn't understand the world like a child but then she's just drawn like a normal comic book woman and there and then there's just the weird ethics of like batman taking this child woman into battle with him constantly and it's just it's yeah jeff johns tried to do something with oh god light-based powers and the spectrum around yeah, I, uh, I vaguely recall Blackest that night I don't know, maybe it wasn't John's, maybe it was just in the Outsiders book at that time during the crossovers mm-hmm. with Blackest Night. But I think that was the last time she appeared. I don't think we've seen her since the New 52. Mm-hmm. And, then and then there's, there's Geoforce. Yeah, who's just... Brion is a, a character who never knows what his purpose is. And he wanders around. And every now and then, again, they try to make Geoforce happen. Right. He's, I mean, he's kind of the himbo of the team almost. And he's yeah. almost, he also reminds me a little of, of he's the outsider's havoc. It's, you know, oh, in terms of that is a really good call. <laughs> he really does have that. Lots of power, kind of can't really control it. Means well, a little simple. Seems to get taken advantage of a lot. Bill hasn't finished his degree. Right. <laughs> Likes rocks. They both like rocks. That's true. When you look at Geoforce's history, it's like, all right, he does this for a while. Then it turns out that Helen Jace is a, a manhunter and betrays him during Millennium. And then he goes and pouts for a while. And then he comes back when the 90s Outsiders book. And then they try to put him on the Justice League during that Meltzer era. And yeah, that's right. Doesn't really work. And then he tries to kill Deathstroke and it doesn't really work. And then he was behind the Shadow War recently, and that didn't really work. So speaking of Deathstroke, did we know at the time that his sister is Tara? No. Okay. Tara had appeared about a year before this. Okay. And it was clearly laid out that that was the relation, but it doesn't become clear 
until the Outsiders New Teen Titans crossover at issue. It's only a few months away. Yeah, that's right. I remember that. Yeah, it's, that it, that becomes explicit. I think it's issue four or five of the Outsiders is when that crossover happens. Yeah. But it's all set up. I mean, his costume looks like hers. Looks like hers. It's, yeah. it's pretty clear, but they don't make it explicit until the crossover when he finds her. Right. It's probably one of those things that if you were reading both books and paying attention, you'd piece it together, but they hadn't called it out on page yet. But I mean, I don't think there's there's not much more to this story. It's a very, as you, I think you said, it was a very paint by numbers introducing the super team story. Right. But, it you know, it gets the job done. And I appreciated that it was two issues. You know, nowadays that would have been a six issue arc. I mean, I don't know. We don't need to be the cranky old men complaining about the good old days, but six issues just to get to the team forming is what we is pretty common these days. So, and let's be fair, we are the, the, the last appearance of uh, Black Lightning. How many how many issues was that uh, in the detective comics with a very similar thing of getting a team together? Right. The, that. Oh, the yeah. Brian Hill. One was a six issue arc to get right. to the same point. But, but at the it, same time, to Barr's credit, like he doesn't draw it out. He gives it enough room, but he doesn't draw it out. Like there's something to be said for that, that it's more than just a done in one. But we're not going to linger too long on this and get to the the meat of it. And we here at Bat Chat, we like a tight story. Nothing wrong with a long story if it deserves it. But we mm-hmm. always will respect a good one or two part story over a longer six issue story that could have been told in four or three. Right. Uh, especially if the story is bad. If, it's, if you're going to have a bad story, get that shit done with quickly. I think I'm good. I am too. Oh, I was going to ask, what's the official Bat Chat stance on Batman on a team? My stance on Batman on a team is Batman works on a team because no matter how many times we have writers talk about Batman works alone, Batman worked alone for nine issues. Right. Robin made his first appearance in Detective 38. Batman has always worked with partners, works in a dynamic. I don't know how much of the traditional leadership role Batman should take. I think strategist makes Mm -hmm. a lot more sense than Mm -hmm. leader because Bruce can be and is we've seen plenty of stories with batman as inspirational figure but that's not what he goes out of his way to do he's also gruff he's he's right he's not a people person no he's not if you're gonna put him on a team with superman and wonder woman either of them are better more natural leaders than bruce but they i would absolutely accept them defaulting to him when it comes to okay, we need to go into battle. How should we do this? The Justice League dynamic should be Clark or Diana as the field leader and Bruce and Jean doing strategy Mm -hmm. because they're the the two who have the most experience. Batman generally is a strategist and Jean as a team member because Martian Manhunter is always on a team. He knows how to synthesize people He's literally the psychic who connects them all. Right. But I I do not see a problem with Batman as a member of a team. I definitely, some of this is the era that I came up in when he wasn't on a team at first. 
And they were trying to do the whole like he's an urban legend and not everybody believes there's a Batman and all that kind of stuff where having him as the the smiling, waving on stage member of the of the Justice League kind of belies all that. But I, I like the way Morrison handled it, where he was on the team, but wasn't necessarily at the press conferences or anything like that. And that felt like a good way to kind of split the difference there of, yeah, he's on the team and he's in, and he's the, the cool strategist of the team, but he's also maintaining some level of deniability in terms of actually existing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I will agree with that, uh, that assessment. He is a team player, but certainly he's always plots within plots and wheels and, you know, the kind of guy who, has a plan for taking <laughs> down all of his team members. Uh, things go sideways. And uh, I'm sure Batman would have a file on all of the outsiders. So He was yeah. writing that file while they were still in Markovia. Well, you got to do something on the way there. Right, right. Flying back to Gotham. Gee, Batman, what are you writing? Nothing. Oh, what's, what's that black lightning? You don't have your powers anymore? Crosses off some like complicated anti-electric scheme and just writes in like gun <laughs> punch him really punch. hard well i believe that silence means it's time but batman and the outsiders enter the outsiders off the big board i think this is the this is the best story of the night i'm thinking somewhere in the lower hundreds Lower is in lower on the list hundreds. Like it cracks two hundred. Well, we've got your baby blades at one eighty nine. How do you feel about that? This is a more significant story than blades. This introduces the outsiders as a concept to the DC universe. It successfully introduces and establishes the basics of their dynamics in two issues. Hmm. I'm thinking somewhere around the 175 area. Because at 177, you have the mud pack, all the clay faces teaming up. And that's four issues, and that's way more busy than this. Yeah. I don't think it tops Batman Judge Dredd. No, but Batman Judge Dredd also needs to move up this list. That's true. I'd probably put Brotherhood of the Fist above it at 172. Yeah. I'm thinking possibly the new 175. Because I like the Misfits, the Alan Grant, Tim Sale story with Catman and Killer Moth and Calendar Man and Chancer. I think that has a lot of fun in it. it Where the Assassins is okay, the death of Taffy Kane, Batwoman, but it also is sort of all over the place. And again, this is a more a more streamlined story. So I'm saying new 175. Works for me. All right. And that's it for tonight. Austin, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It, Where, was, a blast. it was a pleasure. Where can people find you and your writing online? Well, if you um, inexplicably enjoy the sound of my voice and want to hear more of it, uh, I am on a podcast called A Very Special Episode, which is a podcast that reviews very special episodes of TV. Me and two friends get together and do that uh, semi-regularly at this point. 
uh, our days of weekly podcasting are are behind us. But uh, we still put out episodes uh, semi-regularly. You can find that anywhere that you get podcasts, wherever you're listening to this show. Uh, and our website is a very special podcast, very special episode podcast.com. And then you can find me uh, writing for Comics XF and a whole bunch of other places. Uh, follow me on the socials and, and I'll tweet tweet and Insta and Blueski toot i don't know man this is a nightmare that we live in i mean i'm on all of them some combination of austin gordon is usually my is my handle whichever one you're on follow me there um i try to update them all as as much as i can i am still most active on the site formerly known as twitter where i'm tweeting out a trading card every day and celebrating 60 years of x-men by tweeting out a, a a different uh cover or fun fact or character from each of the x-men's uh, 60 years every day now now uh, let's see here you got to just do the X-Men trading cards, right? I have, I have done the first set of X-Men trading cards. We'll we'll get to the next set soon. You got to work smarter, not harder. Right, right. <laughs> so as for next week, it's time to celebrate Halloween, where ghosts and goblins and beasts are seen. But these are not just tales of Batman, but stories with the demon Etrigan. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers. Dan Grote, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Agoyutes, Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bobby Tubucks, Tim Rooney, Giorgio Sreggioli, David Wheel, Alexander Wheel, and Matt McThorne. McThorney! For their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Batchat with Matt and Will, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter or Blue Sky at MattLaz1013. Oh, and I'll never be on Blue Sky. And I'm at Will Nevin on the dying hellscape. I'm out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. <laughs>